idolatry, emptiness, and hypocrisy. Welcome to another uplifting backdrop. Yes, we are smushing together the backdrops from the past two weeks here, looking in particular at the second and fifth chapters of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah outlines some of the charges against the people of Israel. In particular, as we've explored in our sermon times these past couple weekends, the idolatry and injustice that has come to characterize the people of Israel. Today on The Backdrop, I thought we could take a little bit of a deeper look at some of the charges that Jeremiah makes as well as think a bit more about the parallels and implications for us today. And as we have promised, the show notes page on the Pomona Valley Church website will include a few discussion questions that you and a few can use alongside this podcast. So let's dive in. These chapters of Jeremiah, as I said, are dominated by the accusations of unfaithfulness and idolatry being leveled against Israel. The seriousness of these charges are shown by the types of comparisons Jeremiah uses to describe the people. We've gone into in past weeks the extreme, offensive even, comparisons to unfaithful wives, whores, animals in heat, a whole catalog of sexual accusations, really. But Jeremiah also has other ways of conveying the seriousness of the offenses. I mentioned one this past weekend where Israel's injustice is compared unfavorably to the injustice of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I wanted to highlight here one more quick example of this. In chapter 5, verses 20 to 23, Jeremiah uses an interesting image to talk about how rebellious Israel is. He says in verse 22, Is it not me that you should be in awe of? Yahweh's words. Is it not before me that you should tremble? The one who set the sand as the boundary for the sea, a limit in perpetuity that it should not pass over? Its waves toss, but don't overcome. They roar, but don't pass over. But this people has a mutinous, rebellious mind. They have mutinied and gone. For us, this might sound like an image of God's power. God is the creator. God created even the ocean. So it doesn't make sense for Israel to have abandoned this creator God, Yahweh. But there's something a bit more going on here. The sea in the ancient world was an image of chaos. And you can understand why. Even huge ships, when they put out to sea, are at its mercy. They get thrown around like a child's toy, unpredictable, unstoppably. The sea is immensely powerful, chaotic, unpredictable. And so, in creation myths in the ancient Near East, you often see the gods defeating the sea, in some sense, as a mark of their power. They can even control the extremes of chaos and rebelliousness and create land from it. And so that is what is in view here. God sets the boundaries for the sea and the sea obeys. But Israel doesn't. Israel is not just more unjust than the most unjust place imaginable, Sodom. They are also more rebellious than the most rebellious thing imaginable, the sea. And this flows into another interesting thing here. This image raises the question, well, if God told the sea to stay put and made the sea obey, why doesn't God do the same with Israel? Meredith mentioned this last week, and it's true. God doesn't seem to chase after God's people when they stray. 
They want to go after idols, and God lets them. They want to devolve into injustice, and God allows it. To a point, of course, as I said this past Sunday. But far more so than the sea, God allows humans a huge degree of freedom. Even when humans misuse that freedom. God sends prophets, sends warnings, is always available to God's people even when they stray, but doesn't seem to exercise the power God has available, at least not most of the time. This is interesting to me. Meredith and I have been in church spaces, and this is true elsewhere other than the church, of course, but the church is the place that is supposed to be acting like God in some sense. But some of the churches we've been in seem to care very much about controlling people. They have an agenda for you and for the church, and you are going to fit into that agenda, or else you are going to be labeled as disobedient, disloyal, unchristian. I think that sort of attitude is based on a misreading of much of the Bible. Yes, God is sovereign. God is in control of all creation. The verses we just looked at make that clear. But... God doesn't seem to exercise that sovereignty with people as often as we might expect. God is comfortable, apparently, or maybe not comfortable, but at least allows for hundreds and hundreds of years of idolatry and injustice to consume Israel before God does anything about it. Just think about that. Hundreds of years. God is sitting back and watching this always hoping for Israel to return, always warning them, but not forcing it. I think of the prodigal son here, the parable Jesus told. God is the father who lets his son wander off with half the inheritance and doesn't chase after him, doesn't go try to protect him, doesn't try to save him, doesn't make him obey like a son should. So what, the father doesn't care? Goodbye and good riddance? No, every day. The story says the father has been watching, hoping for his son to return. And when he sees him, finally, he runs, which, by the way, is never what a dignified older man would do in that culture. But he runs to his boy who has returned. God seems far more comfortable with not using power than we tend to be. And about something that's far more important than the things we tend to power up about. It's something to ponder. But now, let's turn to the discussion of idolatry in these two chapters. There is a sustained comparison of the idols the people have turned to with the God they have turned from. God is consistently portrayed, and we've talked in past weeks about this connection with the marriage metaphor. God is consistently portrayed as a provider. God gave them manna and water and brought them through the wilderness and to the promised land. And so what's being highlighted in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and a few other places in these chapters, is the fact that God sustained and provided for them in far more perilous circumstances than they are facing right now. But they've forgotten, and so they're afraid. And so they look for provision and protection elsewhere. The challenges we are currently facing do that to us, don't they? Even when they are far less serious than what we've made it through in the past, they seem bigger and scarier because they are here and we don't know how this story ends. Whereas those past challenges, we know that we make it through them. I think that's what Israel is doing here. And when we find ourselves in that sort of place, sometimes we do what Israel does. We get scared. 
and we stop trusting that God is going to provide for us now, just like God did then. That's one of the reasons why the Bible tells and retells and retells the story of how God has provided for God's people in the past. It's why we tell and retell the story today. And it's why at Pomona Valley Church, we tell and retell our own stories, making them a part of our worship together on a regular basis to remind us that God has been faithful so we can trust that God will continue to be so because that's who God is. Because the alternative just doesn't make any sense. That's the message Jeremiah is proclaiming. The idols the people turn to are nothing. Chapter 2, verse 5 says this so well. What wrongdoing did your ancestors find in me, that they went far away from me, went after emptiness, and became emptiness? The word translated emptiness in other translations is worthless things or breath. It literally means a puff of wind, something that's here, oh, oh, and it's gone. It hasn't left any lasting impression. It hasn't accomplished anything. It's the very definition of pointlessness. That is what turning to idols, or as we've tried to emphasize as we talk about this, that's what turning to other sources of protection and provision are ultimately like. They're puffs of wind. Verse 8 says, they followed after beings that couldn't achieve anything. Verse 11 says, when no nation ever from the far west of Cyprus to the far east of Kedar changes their gods, why would Israel change from the splendor of Yahweh to that which doesn't achieve anything? Chapter 5, verse 7 returns to this idea, saying, You all have abandoned Yahweh to swear by no gods, or ungods, things that claim to be gods but actually are like a void where the god is supposed to be. (laughs) We don't make stone or wood figures to represent these things today, but they exist all the same. The ancient world was concerned most of all with rain coming to grow crops, babies coming to continue on the family line, and enemy nations leaving us in peace to enjoy our crops and families. That was the good life, if you will. And when word of armies marching this way starts to get out, or a couple weeks of the rainy season go by without rain, they could feel the good life starting to slip away. Now, we define it differently, maybe. But what do we do when we are worried that the good life might slip away? Do we fall back on trust that God has provided for God's people in the past and for us in the past and will continue to do so into the future? Or do we look for other sources of protection and provision? Money or relationships, achievement, status or status symbols, escape through mindless entertainment or drugs or something else, leisure. What do we turn to to provide the good life for us? Jeremiah would say, good luck. That's like trusting in a puff of wind, a void, emptiness. Or do we turn to politics for protection? Supporting the right candidate or the right policies. Oh, they'll help us feel like the world is under control again, that hope can be found. I don't want to get overly specific here, but man, the guy makes it easy. Trump literally promised to those who voted for him, I alone can fix it. I'm the only one who can fix our problems. 
But politicians of all stripes promise that exact same thing all the time, though usually not quite so blatantly. This is what Israel did too. In chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, Jeremiah says, The people of Memphis and Tapanes, cities in Egypt, will also break your skull, Jerusalem. So now what gain is there for you in a journey to Egypt to drink the Nile's water? What gain is there for you in a journey to Assyria to drink the Euphrates water? Water, as Meredith mentioned last week, is the ultimate in provision in Israel. It is the thing from which food and life flow. Without it, it doesn't exist. One of the themes that Jeremiah will come back to again and again is the way that the people of Israel went off to get protection through political alliances with the empires around them. They went to Egypt for protection against Babylon, which is what these verses are pointing out. This is nothing more than a different form of idolatry. To look to another nation or the right political strategy for protection is no different ultimately than looking to Baal or Moloch. This is why it's important to keep in mind that the core meaning of idolatry isn't religious in the sense of believing that another God exists in addition to Yahweh. That lets us and Israel off the hook too easily. The core meaning of idolatry is looking to something other than God for security and protection. It's to look for the good life apart from Yahweh. How many times, Jeremiah is asking, do you need to see that that doesn't work? How many puffs of air do you need to chase? How many times does the market need to collapse or the job prospects dry up or some person let you down or that political strategy come back to bite you before you realize that you keep coming back to a broken cistern looking for water while ignoring the spring bubbling up in the backyard? And Jeremiah wants us to know that it goes further than that. It's not just that we are let down, it's that we become what we worship. That verse we talked about earlier was that the people went after emptiness and became emptiness. Instead of the fullness of life that God promises and provides, they've become meaningless and empty, just like their gods. This is what I was wanting to highlight this past week. Idolatry always leads to injustice because we become like what we worship. When money is what ultimately provides us with security, we begin to see the world, people, through the lens of dollars and cents. And then destroying the environment for the sake of profit begins to seem like a logical rather than diabolical choice. When affirmation from other people is what makes life worth living, we start to see every minute and every person as an opportunity to seek affirmation for ourselves. When political power is what helps the world feel safe, and secure, we're willing to excuse cruelty, bullying, and lies because, hey, they all do it anyway, and at least my preferred policies are getting passed now. But then the day comes when it all falls apart. And as chapter 2, verses 27 and 28 say, They say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth, idols, for they have turned their backs to me and not their faces. And when disaster befalls them, they say, Arise and rescue us. And where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them rise and rescue when disaster befalls you. 
and the gods are no more there than that puff of wind. And these verses bring up another important piece of Jeremiah's discussion of idolatry, one that we will come back to later in the book as well. Have we mentioned that this book just kind of circles around and around the same themes and the same cycles? And that is the hypocrisy of the people. They want it both ways. They want Yahweh and. Disaster comes and they say, arise and rescue us. To whom? To Yahweh. We're in trouble here. Come and rescue us. And Yahweh's response is, you're in trouble because you went looking for protection in other places. You went off to other gods for your security. So have them rescue you. In some of these verses, it seems like the people don't even fully realize that they've gone after other gods, or maybe they've lied to themselves enough that they don't even see it anymore. In verse 23, it says, how can you say, I was not defiled. I have not gone after the Baals. As a quick side note, the book of Jeremiah usually says the Baals, which literally means the masters. And seems like a stand-in for all of the pagan gods of the nations around them, including Baal, but also including the rest of them. So, anyhow, they say, we haven't gone after them, which seems insane to say. Like, clearly you have gone after other gods. But don't we do this too? Lie to ourselves in this way? I haven't actually looked to my bank account or stock portfolio to provide my security instead of God, but my God, have you seen what just happened to the Dow Jones? Oh, my retirement. I haven't actually looked to relationships to fill the void in my life in place of Jesus, but that person just let me down again and now I want to die. Disaster has struck and the response we have is not, oh man, I went after a puff of wind. No wonder it didn't work. I dug a broken cistern. No wonder it didn't hold water. Maybe I should come back to God and trust in what God provides. But instead, often our response is, how could you, God? How could you do this to me? Come and fix this. Arise and rescue me. Which isn't quite the same thing, is it? We also see this in chapter 5, verse 2, where the people are shown swearing by God as Yahweh lives even though they aren't living as if Yahweh lives at all. This is a theme that we will have a lot more to say about in future weeks, but it's introduced here. The idea that people rely on their religious practice and the appearance of still following Yahweh, when actually they have chased after other sources of protection and provision. They still show up for worship and have their quiet times, but the rest of the week they show who or what they are actually putting their trust in, which is always something that's worth us checking in for ourselves too. Am I just going through the motions of following Jesus, but actually I'm putting my trust in something else for the good life? That's the ultimate question of Jeremiah as a whole, but in particular, these two chapters, chapter two and chapter five that we've looked at today. And I think that what we're going to do is wrap up there. There is, as always, far more to say about any passage of the Bible than there is time to say it all, but I hope you have found this to be a helpful and interesting way of fleshing out some of the aspects of these two chapters that we weren't able to dive into on the weekends. For those who are interested, this coming Sunday, we will be circling back to chapter 3 and talking about repentance a bit more. Because while God doesn't go chasing after us or forcing us to return, God desperately wants us to. God desperately wants us to choose to do so on our own. So, 
Read chapter three if you're interested for this coming Sunday, and we'll be talking about that a bit more. Now, if you're working through this podcast with your you and a few, we will post discussion questions in the show notes on the website. But just to get your mind working on them right now, if you want, I'll read them quickly. So first, the heart of idolatry is often a search for the good life that we fear is not coming our way. How does our culture define what the good life consists of? What makes life worth living for many people today? And then, which of those aspects are most tempting to you? Second set of questions. What idols, sources of protection, provision, security, or the good life, what idols do people chase after today? What similarities and differences are there with the people Jeremiah was talking to in this book? And then what idols call out to you most loudly? And then third, not really a question, but spend some time telling stories together about when God has protected and provided for you or for others that you know. And this can include stories from scripture that are particularly meaningful to you. As I was saying earlier, repeating and remembering the things that God has done and who God is are maybe the best antidote to chasing after the idols that are empty, as opposed to the God who provides and is faithful. So that's it for the backdrop this week. We will be meeting together on Zoom for worship this Sunday at 4.30 as usual. And we would love to see you there. Links are on the website, pomonavalleychurch.org. And so until then, bye. Bye.